All right, good morning. If you haven't already, please turn your Bibles to Psalm 139. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide for you, it's on page 505. 505. This is the sixth week of a series in which we're looking at uh, different psalms from the Psalter. The Psalter is the ancient hymn book of ancient Israel. They would gather together uh, for worship of God, and they would sing these songs. And the songs of the psalms uh, capture so much of the heart and the capacity of the human to experience all kinds of different emotions. We've been through all kinds of psalms, but last week and this week kind of go together, and they've intentionally been so. Last week we looked at Psalm 23, and we looked at the idea that God is our shepherd, and that he is always with us. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he prepares a table in the presence of our enemies, right? Between uh, this experience here on life when things are good and when thing is, things are bad, God is with us. He leads us. He guides us. But this week, there's another theme that kind of goes along with that, and it's this idea that God is Uh, knows us intimately and detailed. He knows us. He's not only with us, but he knows us. Psalm 139 is a hymn of thanksgiving. It's a a, a song where we give thanks to God. And what are we giving thanks to? For the knowledge that he has of us and that he still loves us. It's a hymn of thanksgiving celebrating our relationship with God. God knows us. I've been thinking about that a lot this week the correlation, you know, that exists between God's presence and God's knowledge. God's presence and his knowledge. You know that old phrase, there's like two competing phrases in the romantic realm, right? Absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? And then there's another one about being close, you know? I forget it now because I'm nervous. But, uh, (laughs) Absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I've been thinking about that. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I had prepared this whole introduction about how uh, my relationship with Sarah, and I'll just leave that for now. But I've been thinking about how it's so often when I think about my relationship with God, my temptation is always to compare it to the human relationships I have, whether that's with Sarah or with my friends or, you know, with the church or however that works. And I was thinking about how our relationship with God works so much different. You know, all of our comparisons of relationship are really almost anthropomorphisms because we're trying to understand something that is almost uh, ununderstandable. You know, a God who is far off, we'll see in the text in just a moment, yet a God who knows us deeply and intimately. With these competing ideas, the text is still drawing us in and trying to help us understand just how deeply we are connected to God. And so this particular psalm, it it really breaks down into four different parts, and I'm just going to work you through those parts. And and it's like perfect mathematically because it's six verses in each part, you know, 24 verses. The first six verses teach us this, that God knows you completely. God knows you completely. You'll notice in the text, if you were to look at it, that the language of you serves as the subject of nearly all of the verbs. The psalmist is praising God, and he's saying, You have searched me. You know me. You discern me. You perceive me. This language of knowledge. That there is nowhere we can go where God does not know us. In fact, you see in the text, he knows us from afar. Verse 2, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. And I thought to myself how the psalmist is declaring something that he may not always feel, but that he is declaring something that is true nonetheless, you know? It often 
is the case that if we are afar, we're not perceiving and knowing all that much, right? But God, who is not like us in any way, perceives us from afar and he knows us. What the psalmist is declaring is, it may not feel like God knows you, but he knows you. He knows you inside and out. He knows every day. He knows every detail of your daily routine, every unspoken thought. He knows everything there is to know about you, right? And I've thought to myself how that is both a comforting and terrifying thought. Does that make sense? That is both a comforting and terrifying thought. He knows me. He knows what I've thought. He knows what I've done. He knows what I planned to do and never did, whether that's good or bad. He knows me. And that's both comforting and it's terrifying. You ever watch those or read those books, those like uh, sci-fi type things where they've got those people who can read into other people's minds, you know? And that feels like when you even read the stories, I'm, I'm thankful that none of you have that power over me. You know, that'd be a terrible thing. Uh, I'm glad I don't have that power over you. But I've thought about how, you know, in those sci-fi books or movies, they often have these things where the people, they have to practice. Remember Harry Potter? And they have to pro- practice like uh, shielding their mind so that the people who can get into their mind won't be able to do it. And yet there is no shield from God. He knows everything there is to know about you, but I want you to hear this. While that may seem like a comforting and at the same time terrifying thought, for the psalmist, the thought is comforting. You see it in the language. Isn't the language of the psalm beautiful? When I rise up, when I lie down, you hem me in before me and behind me. You know, these opposite thoughts. You're before me, you're behind me. Everywhere you go, there you are, you know me. And the text says, verse 6, the psalmist declares, this knowledge, he doesn't say it's too terrifying for me. He says, this knowledge is too wonderful wonderful for me. I can't even understand it. It's too lofty to attain. I think one of our, (laughs) I think one of our deepest desires is to be known completely by someone else, to be known completely by someone else and still be loved and still be accepted, right? The deeper we go in a relationship, the more we reveal about ourselves. The deeper we go in a relationship, the more we reveal about ourselves. And that's a natural and good thing. And there is always this worry. I mean, I I can't help but thinking back to like what it's like to date. And that's a long time ago for me. But you know, in the beginning when you're dating, you're kind of not revealing everything there is to know, right? I even remember we were, Sarah and I uh, started dating when we were in Chicago because we went to school there and we were walking across the bridge that goes across the Chicago River and I remember the exact location I could take you to it. And I, I remember asking her a question and I remember, um, I don't even remember what the question was, but I remember she looked at me and she's like, well, I don't know if I'm ready to share that yet, you know? And I remember thinking, well, I need to stay involved in this to get the answer to my questions, you know? <laughs> I better, I guess I better be in this for the long haul. It drew me in, you know? But the deeper we know, the the more intimate we get, the more we know. And we keep drawing in and drawing in. And the psalmist is saying, not in a terrified way, in a joyful way that he can't even hardly believe it, God knows everything there is to know about me. And it's amazing. 
But he doesn't just say that he knows us. He then couples this with presence in the second section of the psalm, verses 7 through 12. He declares it in light of uh, something that many people have tried to do throughout their life. Many people have tried to do throughout the scripture. He he, he captures his words in the language of as if he was trying to escape from God. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now he gives you this kind of, these different uh, comparisons. If I were go, to go up into the heights of the heavens, you are there, right? No surprise there. Everybody expects God to be in the heavens. If I were to make my bed in the depths, you are there. The comparison is uh, where the place where the dead, the dead go. It's not a theological textbook, the Bible, where it's telling us that God is present in hell. That's the wrong question. It's just a poetic way of saying, if I were to go into the heights of the heavens, the place where you dwell, or if I were to go to the place where the dead are, all the dead dwell, still you would be there. If I were Uh, to take the wings of the dawn and go up into the sky, or if I were to make my bed in the seashore, you would be there. If I were to go into the place of great darkness, right? And in the ancient world, it was this idea that darkness was this place of of chaos, that the darkness was was this place of uncertainty, and darkness was a place of fear. It's hard for us to fully grasp this because when dark comes every night, It's so easy for us to have light, right? We just flip a switch, immediate. But darkness, have you ever been in a place? I have a couple times in my life. It's terrifying. When you're in a place where it is completely dark and you don't have any access to illumination and you have no idea what you're going to do, right? Even if I were to go in the darkness, the dark is not dark to you. For the dark is like daytime to you. And the darkness is his light. Do you see? Where we feel this level of chaos and uncertainty and fear, that realm, the realm of chaos and uncertainty and fear, to God is a place of nothing more than joy and direction and guidance. If I were to make my bed in the sea, if I were to fly like a bird into the heavens, and if I were to be in the dark, the chaos would not overwhelm me for you are everywhere and I cannot escape your presence. And God says in the third section, not only do I know you fully, not only am I with you always, but lastly, we go way back, right? Verses 13 through 18. Have you ever heard this phrase where you kind of saying, we have this history, Now, God is taking his history with our relationship back to the way, way, way back before you even existed. He is telling you that there was a time when God existed, right? This is what Christians believe. There was a time when God existed and nothing else was. For God created everything that was. And it even kind of takes us the language back to the language of Genesis 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. In the beginning, the earth was formless and void. And God's spirit hovered over the waters. The idea here is the the language of formless and void is there was just this lump of mass, right? And God took it and he used it and created. It is the same thing here. Verse 15. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when you wove me together out of the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed body. This language here is just the language of a mass. You saw me. I think the comparison is you saw the the unformed mass, this kind of before anything even existed, and there was just this raw material, and you looked at the material. This is not a scientific take on how we were to come to creation. And you saw me in the material, the raw material. You looked before anything was there, and you knew the number of my days, and you knew exactly what I would look like, how I would be formed, and you made me. We go way back. We go way back. And the psalmist doesn't say just, you were uninvolved and you knew me and you formed me and you're present. It said, during all that time, from the very beginning of creation, before creation existed, when there was only God and there was no time, you knew me. You were with me and you thought of me. I, (laughs) you, God, knew me You were with me, and your thoughts were always with me. We have limited amounts of thoughts, right? But God is not limited by anything. And so for each and every one of you and each and every one of you that exists on this world and each and every one of you that doesn't exist, that did exist, that will exist, God thinks of you. His thoughts, his eyes are on you. How precious are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. I remember when I was in college, when I was in college, I just started to date Sarah. It was my third year of college and I was on the soccer team and we took a long, it was like a a week down to Florida because we were in this big tournament, right? A soccer tournament. And I remember I was, it was in October and I was just starting to get to know Sarah. I didn't start to officially date her until November. But my thoughts were just filled with her all the time. I remember I roomed with my, my, my closest friend that was on the soccer team. His name was Keith. And I would just talk to him constantly about Sarah. And about the third day of five days, he said, dude, you just got to take a chill pill. Just leave me alone about Sarah. I don't want to hear anything more about her, right? And yet, God, for each and every one of us all the time, no, without end, without stop, is thinking of you. His eye is on you. His thoughts are on you. He's not just seeing you in the worst light. He knows everything you've ever done, and yet he, he longs, right, to be close to you. God knows you. He thinks of you all the time. He is present with you. And from the very beginning, you were in his eye. Now, the psalmist takes a turn in the fourth and final section. Some people have argued that this last section, verses 19 through 24, is just a later addition that the psalmist didn't have in his heart, you know, in the beginning, that he didn't write this and that somebody later added this on. Oftentimes, if there are scripture readings in Psalm 139 that are used for the church, they will often just read verses 1 through 18, Because verses 19 through 24, and specifically 19 through 22, takes a turn that in the mood, in the emotion of this psalm, you would almost never expect, right? How 
How precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they're like the sea. they would be like the sands of the seashore. You are always with me. When I'm awake, you're with me. And now verse 19, and you can almost feel the emotional, like, uh, the emotional grinding of the gears, right? Now, God, if you would only awake and kill those people, right? If you would only awake and slay the wicked, away from me, you who are bloodthirsty, They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? And about those who are in a rebellion against you, I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. I count them as my enemies. I think what's going on here is in the context. This is not a later, I don't believe it's a later edition. I believe that unlike many of the Psalms that are talking about uh, slaying the wicked, Here, the tone is almost incredibly positive until the very end. Usually it starts out, God, why don't you kill the bad people? I don't know why you don't, but I still trust you. Here, the psalmist says, you're amazing. You know me. You're with me. You created me. We go way back. Why don't you kill the bad people, right? But notice that his heart isn't simply to kill the bad people. There's not really, I don't, I don't see in, in the heart in the, of the psalmist, and here we enter into dangerous interpretive ground because how can we know the heart of the psalmist? But I'm going to tell you what I think it is. It appears to me in the text that his desperate desire is to show God that he is with him, that he hates what God hates. You see that in verse 21 and 22, that he hates what God hates, and that he belongs to him. And I think, properly understood, all prayers for wickedness to end is is rightfully a prayer on the behalf of the righteous to see the reality of God go forth in this world and to acknowledge that you are on the side of God. I don't often think like this, so it it's even awkward or unusual for me to explain. I tend to think through the lens of the Gospels, and probably so many of you do, you know, love your enemies uh, and turn the other cheek. You know, all this language that we read that Jesus said. And yet, so much of the Old Testament in, in the Psalms, there's the bloodthirsty, kill them, God, right? Can you imagine singing that this morning in our worship songs? And what is the psalmist doing? And I think all kinds of things, you know, who knows if I'm right. But I think predominantly what I am right about is this comes from a time that was completely different than the time that we exist in. And it's hard for us to get in the mind of the psalmist. But at the heart of what is going on in verses 19 through 22 is a heart to say, my heart yearns for and longs for the things of God. And I am on your side, and I want you and only you. In this context of conflict and hostility, the psalmist, the singer, speaks in trust and thankfulness of God's presence and his knowledge of him, even when things are not going well. And the psalmist ends, and as we transition this morning into communion, I want us to use verses 23 and 24 as kind of the, the, 
the transitional piece is how we enter into communion. And as we have time to meditate and reflect on what the blood and what the body, broken body of Christ means for us personally, I want you to use these words in verses 23 and 24 to evaluate your own heart and imagine the spiritual strength and courage it would take to ask God this. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. This morning, as we transition to communion in a few moments, I want you to think about, personally for your own life, are you willing to pray that prayer before God? Are there things in your life that you know are not pleasing to God, but that you want, that you want to keep on the side because you enjoy them, right? And I don't say this to just you. I say it to myself as well. Could you really pray? Do you have the courage to pray? Search me, O God, and know me. See if there's any offensive way in me, and then if there is, lead me in the way of everlasting. The psalmist, yeah, he he says some things that maybe it's hard for us to relate to about slaying enemies and killing wicked people. But I think if you've ever really been through a really hard time, you can kind of understand that. Put it to an end, right? But his intimacy with God is based on the fact that his heart and motivation are something that he is completely comfortable with God testing out. Not only is he comfortable, he begs for God to do it. That he is completely comfortable and begs God to test his heart to test his motivations. And his heart is, if there's anything in his life that is not right, would you help me put it that way? Our relationship with God is not based on uh, our actions, right? It's based on what Jesus has done for us. And yet, I promise each and every one of you that no matter what, if you are purposely running from God, you cannot escape him, but you will feel at times as though your heart is far from him. And if you want to have the intimacy and closeness with God that the psalmist has, you must pray, God, know me and search me. You were with me from the beginning. I cannot escape you. Know me. Show me, lead me in the way that is your will. And as we see the elements, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and as they sit before us on these tables, and as you have the time to reflect, I ask that you would pray in your hearts, God, is there anything I need to change? And then through the elements of communion, his broken body, his shed blood, use these moments where we actively come forward and we receive and we touch and we feel and we taste, use this experience to empower me by your spirit to have the right heart before you and to do what is right and to love you above all else. Let me pray for us. Father, as we transition to communion this morning,
I ask that by the power of your spirit that you would open our hearts. And by that, I mean our desires to want you above anything else. And I pray that you would use this time at the communion table to change and transform us and to remove and make, uh, make clear that if any area in our life is offensive to you so that we might make it right, so that with thanksgiving, we might experience intimacy with you in the same way that this songwriter, the psalmist, experienced. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.